Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Jason Tan, co-founder and CEO of SIFT, a digital trust and safety company. They've taken a very interesting approach to tackling online fraud and redefining how trust works online. To give you an example, today, we're all guilty until proven innocent when we're online. This is not the case, and it really limits the online experiences we can have. Jason is an alumni of the famous Y Combinator Accelerator program. For tech startups, it's a very prestigious program to be a part of, but perhaps misunderstood by those on the outside. Since graduating from Y Combinator, Jason and his team went on to raise over $100 million to build out their service. Along the way, Jason's taken his hits and dealt with the ongoing pressures of managing a growing company, raising millions in venture financing, and then having to deal with his investors. When asked about building relationships with VCs, Jason made a really good point. He said that investors tend to be very curious people. So leverage this by helping feed their curiosity so they're better off for meeting you. I like this point because another coffee meeting is not what a professional investor needs. We also hear from Jason about how his role as a leader is continuously evolving as his company grows. We also hear him speak candidly about his battles with depression as an entrepreneur. This interview combines the entrepreneurial story and solid lessons you can apply in financing your business. So I hope you enjoy the show. On the line, I have Jason Tan, who's the co-founder and CEO of SIFT, a company that focuses on fraud prevention and the technology in and around that. I'm going to hand it over to you, though, Jason. Perhaps you can give us some background on yourself and we can dive into your company and your entrepreneurial story. Yeah, thanks for having me, Corey. I'm excited to be here. I'm Jason. I'm the co-founder and CEO of SIFT. We are a San Francisco technology company fighting fraud and helping online businesses use trust to drive growth. And I'm excited to be here. There's a few reasons why I reached out. One is I, I find the world of cybersecurity really interesting and fraud prevention. And I think you guys are coming at it from an interesting angle. The second is you've raised considerable amounts of money for your company. So you're no stranger to what it takes to engage investors. And I think that we can drill in there. But I also understand you've got an interesting entrepreneurial story, starting as an engineer working with some big names. Can we start there and get a bit of a scope on your career and then we can build from there? Yeah, sure. So I was actually a first generation immigrant. I was born in Taiwan and moved to Seattle with my family in 1997. And I've always appreciated having the experience growing up of a more global perspective and just seeing other ways and other cultures of living and came over in 1997, went to the University of Washington and graduated with a computer science degree. And then from there, kind of accidentally stumbled my way into the world of startups and 
you know, I've intentionally originally been interested in working in a big company like Facebook or Google or Amazon, but I was actually rejected by all those big businesses coming out of school. And so that left me to work and join this brave new world of startups that I didn't know anything about. But that was actually really lucky for me because I've come to really learn and appreciate the entrepreneurial path as far as my own journey concerns. And so, yeah, from there, University of Washington graduated 2006 and went to Zillow, which is now a publicly traded real estate business. And I was very lucky to join them early as around employee number 60. And from there, it's just been working at a bunch of different other startups up until starting SIFT in 2011. And in 2011, I moved down to San Francisco to go through the Y Combinator startup incubator here. And yeah, here we are nine years later. As I understand, I mean, you guys are nine years in, $100 million raised, have a really interesting business. I, one thing I didn't actually realize, and I'm wondering if you can elaborate on that, is coming out of or being an alumni of Y Combinator. How was that experience and what do you got for us on that? Yeah, I would just say, I mean, the entrepreneurial journey is so lonely and there's so many things to figure out all at once. And for me, at least, going through the YC incubator program was really meaningful because I felt like I had a community of other founders to connect with and lean on and vice versa. And it just felt less alone. And even though these are all very smart, ambitious people, it never felt like we were competing against each other. It felt like we were always in the trenches together, just rooting along side by side. And so that was unexpected and unusual, but I think really important and, and meaningful. And, and I really uh, look back on that with deep gratitude. I think the second piece is just some of the efficiency that they are able to drive in terms of getting all of these great potential seed round investors in one place and having high quality advisors who can pattern match across the different businesses and really building this container within which we can focus and execute for three months relentlessly up until demo day. And you know, because of Y Combinator, we were able to engage with Max Levchin, the legendary co-founder of PayPal, now the CEO of a firm. And you know, he led our seed round. This was back in 2011. And so obviously really appreciative of what Y Combinator has given us. Talk about world-class and, and the opportunity there. It's interesting. I didn't fully appreciate the community that comes with it because from the outside, I would picture it to be very competitive to a point, you know, almost to a fault, but it sounds like it's not like that. Yeah. I mean, I would say it's extremely competitive to get into YC. Like, I mean, the numbers are pretty insane. It's like thousands of applicants, I think, and then just a few hundred get accepted. But once you're in, I think there's kind of a, you know, big pie mindset, like there's lots and lots of funding to go around and we can all win together. And I think for me, just having that team, I would say, or kind of indirect team beyond me and my co-founder was was really nice. Hmm. Sometimes I look back at points in my career, you know, call it 10 years ago and things that have led to some points of success and obviously some points of failure. But Sometimes I laugh at like, you know, if I knew then what I do now, kind of, you know, that kind of thing. 
how was it for you? Did the going through the program, did your, how did your pitch change? How did your view on the opportunity change and how 10 years in or nine years in, do you feel now when you look back on yourself then? Yeah. I mean, I think probably the thing that comes to mind is just how different my role evolves to be at different stages of the business. I think not having started a business before, not having run a business before, I didn't quite understand how fluid my role would become, assuming that the business was able to continue growing and scale, which luckily we we have been, I think, reinventing my job and my responsibilities at each phase has been a fun challenge. Keeps me on my toes. And I think, you know, something I heard early on when we were starting that I didn't really internalize until later was that initially the CEO's job is, and the CEO slash founder, I mean, it's, it's pretty synonymous at the early stage of company. Our job is to design the product and really get that minimum viable product that lots of users want to buy. But then as you continue to grow and scale, the focus shifts from the design of the product to the design of the company. Mm. And thinking about the culture and the organizational structure and the strategy, and it's less about the specific things like product. And so each phase has required different skill sets. And like I said, it does mean that there's never a dull day. No two weeks are the same. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, it keeps me on my toes, right? It requires just a sort of open-mindedness and agility to not get complacent and stuck in the tasks that I was doing yesterday. Yeah, I guess it goes beyond that user experience to the company experience. Yeah, the atmosphere within the team of what you're building. So interesting path. I, I never thought about that, but that would be very important. Is something else when you say, you know, keeps you on your toes, and this is the segue that I was, I guess I'm looking for is talking about online fraud and whether it be prevention or driving greater trust as you do for your customers. Can we get into that? Because to me, it's a fascinating subject and talk about what SIF does. Yeah, so... I have the caveat here that when we started nine years ago, I didn't know anything about fraud and I didn't even know what a chargeback was. Mm. So it's been quite the journey to really understand the space. And at the same time, I think because we were in some ways outsiders to this domain and industry, it helped us approach the space and problem with a fresh pair of eyes. And so we're able to I think, think a bit outside of the box and innovate in terms of our solution being really a real-time machine learning-driven solution, which was at the time unheard of and really different. And at the same time, also just really focusing on the user experience of how to integrate our offering and, and having APIs that were well-documented and easy to use and developer-friendly. These were all things that were not common back then. And I think that was a big hallmark of our approach to the market. We wanted to build the same class of technology that Amazon and Google and Facebook have built internally to solve these problems and democratize that 
and make it accessible to all other businesses that don't have, you know, an army of engineers and all these resources that the large tech companies do. And so just to talk about the problem in the domain itself, fraud is a word that can cover many different types of abuse. And so for us, you know, we think about payments fraud, accounts, fake accounts, account takeover, account abuse, and then content abuse really spams and scams and other toxic content. And in my experience, it's a fascinating problem because it's very much a cat and mouse game, right? There's a human opponent who is equally motivated and talented and they have access to resources and can use software to do what they want to do at scale more anonymously than they could in person. And it's really interesting to have this type of adversary that is smart and sophisticated. And I think, you know, what we're doing isn't anything new. I think, you know, for as long as humans have existed, there's always bad actors and people abusing trust and taking advantage of others. It's just that now this is happening online and online, there's just very little repercussions, right? Like in the United States, if you were to shoplift, you could be arrested and taken away by the police. But online, if you know, you're know you stealing from someone halfway around the world, there's no legal recourse, really. Like the, the police and the FBI and, and Interpol don't blink unless it's $10 million plus of activity. Mm-hmm. And so I think because... It is sort of a wild west right now. I think a lot of businesses are looking for partners like us who can really help them stay one step ahead. And so we really have focused on building a world-class digital trust and safety platform that helps our customers protect themselves from bad actors. And that's the safety piece of trust and safety. And at the same time, helps our customers use trust as a way to reimagine what kind of friction they introduce into their user experience. Because if you know that someone's trustworthy, there's some really interesting things you can do to offer a more dynamic, pleasant user experience. Maybe you don't have to ask them to re-enter their password multiple times, or you don't have to ask them to fill out a complete checkout form. I think there's a lot of really interesting angles to think about when you can accurately assess someone's trustworthiness. My mind's spinning with questions and thoughts here now. And so bear with me. (laughs) So one thing I just, I think for framing up what I understand SIFT and what you do is working with independent e-commerce companies. And it, you know, the size can range as I understand, but enabling them to have world-class fraud prevention to avoid, I think probably the go-to, one of the main things would be those very costly chargebacks from the credit card companies. And so am I understanding that correctly? Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, our focus is really consumer-facing businesses, digital businesses, where there's exposure to risk at different steps of the user journey. Often the payments and chargebacks is one key point of exposure. And then also fake accounts, account takeover, spams and scams. Mm -hmm. And the other part that I was thinking about when you're talking about online trust was in a long way, there was, well, how to frame this up. In Calgary, Alberta, where I'm based now, in the 2000s, a company was 
founded basically in a garage, which became an online payments company for the gaming industry. And at one point, it was larger than PayPal in the amount of money it was moving, the volume of money it was moving to facilitate online gaming. And what they were able to do to be able to get that kind of user adoption was they recognized that if they were to advance money on a trustworthy basis to the punters, to the gamblers who wanted money and said, we'll put your, you know, hundred bucks or whatever the money is in your account. So we don't have to go through the verification process. They found that the default rate on that was so low because gamblers just wanted to gamble. They wanted to gamble right away. They were able to grow so fast because they basically said, we trust you. And it was a defining factor, which made the company just go crazy. And they did well for a number of years until the DOJ shut them down. (laughs) And there's some wild stories in a book written about that. But it just, you know, it clicked in that there's a speed of trust that can be applied to the world of e-commerce. And it's really interesting what you're doing. Yeah, thanks. I mean, something I think a lot about is how right now a lot of the default internet experience is guilty until proven innocent. Mm. You typed in your password 20 minutes ago. You have to type it in again. You have to pull out your phone to, you know, enter a one-time passcode or you have to, you know, answer a phone call from someone and prove that you are who you say you are. There's all this friction that I feel like is unnecessary if we were more intelligent and more reliable and accurate in our estimation of trustworthiness. And the analogy I like to use here is airport security where most of us are not terrorists and we have no intents on being such and yet we are treated like we could be and it's really unpleasant for all parties and interesting yeah situation and so i think this idea of trust as a driver of growth and really helping businesses reimagine their default user experience is i think something that we're betting the business on i mean this is why you look at our website and we are really the creators of this category of digital trust and safety, right? And it's not yeah. trust or safety, it's trust and safety. You want to weed out the bad actors and you want to use trust to reduce friction and drive conversion rates up. And so we've been really excited to see results with our customers where they're able to accomplish meaningful outcomes on both ends of that spectrum. Because I think historically, legacy solutions have really focused on just the security aspect, reducing fraud, preventing bad actors, which is important. And I think in a world that's becoming more and more digitized and everything's moving online, it's going to be more critical than ever as a consumer-facing business to offer a user experience that is easy, fast, and safe. And that's going to separate winners from losers. And so we believe that our solution is really capable of helping that digital transformation. Hmm. And moving people to be, you know, innocent until proven guilty versus the other way around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. You know, I think perhaps just in the context of, of for management teams and, and executives when looking at their businesses, and perhaps this goes beyond the scope of what you do with SIFT, but what kind of fraud and what kind of safety concerns should they be aware of in just operating their businesses on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think there's multiple layers to this question. I think that I'll try to limit it to our domain, but I think if you're thinking about security and risk management holistically, 
you definitely have internal threats. You have network level threats, which there are plenty of companies that do that. Where we really focus is the application layer and really the endpoints that interact with your customers and how might your customers try to abuse your business logic or take advantage of potential lack of controls or checks or verifications. And so for us, we typically aid customers with and what they're thinking about is, you know, we've got a mandate to grow. We want to grow as quickly as possible. We want to drive revenue, increase sales. We want to delight users. But at the same time, if we leave the front door wide open, malicious actors are going to take advantage of that. Mm. And chargebacks can be very costly, especially if you're a lower margin business and you know things like spam and scams can be very costly because especially on community driven sites, you're hurting the integrity of that community. People lose trust in what they're reading, they don't believe what they read, or they don't believe the people they're interacting with. If there's a lot of fake stuff, and the same thing with account takeover, it's just a really crappy experience for a user who's legitimate to find that their password has been breached and someone's logging in as them all over the internet. And so, the customers that we work with are thinking about how do I get smart about introducing gates and adding verification steps in a way that is able to effectively block bad actors, but then isn't casting too wide of a, of a net and entangling innocent and trustworthy customers. Mm, interesting. So, you know, where I want to go is, is I want to ask about some of your experience early on in your career. And sure. we, as I understand, you, you joined Twilo and you said you like employee number 60. And now that's a publicly traded company and has been a runaway success. What was it like being an engineer in that environment? I've always been curious to know, yeah, what's that experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, so, so just to clarify, the company is Zillow, Z-I-L-L-O-W. Yes, there's a lot of businesses that have the Illo. And so, yeah, I was employee number 60 or so at Zillow. This is back in 2006. And I would just say that I was very lucky in, in many regards to work at a startup that did make it and has been very successful in its own right. And I was able to, by osmosis, kind of just learn a lot from those around me. And I think that was where I really started understanding the value of culture. And Rich Barton, who is a mentor and, and investor in SIF today, but he's this co-founder and CEO of Zillow, he, I think, had learned this lesson himself, having built Expedia and other businesses before building Zillow. And he really took culture seriously. And I really am grateful for, for having that exposure early because in building SIFT, I think that's something that I try to get very intentional about and spend a lot of my time on is how are we working together and how are we treating each other and how are we making decisions around who we should hire and fire and promote? Hmm. One question I have from that is, you know, from the experience you had there, what are you not applying in your leadership now of SIFT? Yeah, I think something that I didn't understand at the time, but I understand better now is having experienced leaders when the time is right. And I think today we have a really strong management team that's full of experience. I think though, five years ago, six years ago, seven years ago, even 
I was a bit late to the game on appreciating and hiring more experienced leaders. And you know, I was 25 when we started the business. So again, I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. But you know, that's something that I noticed Rich did a great job of very early on with Zillow was that he had a strong, strong bench of deeply seasoned executives very early relative to the stage of company. I think that's been a big part of the success that Zillow has had is that you can grow into that. Whereas for us, I think that you know we've done well and I have no regrets about our path. And I now just better understand, oh, having people with more seasoned years of experience can help us see around certain corners sooner. And so you mentioned I'm coming into the company at 25 years old or, or coming into it, starting it. What was your kind of like in between that experience and then starting the company? What filled your time then and what got you to say, this is it, this is what I want to do? There was actually no time. It was a pretty long story that I'll, I'll say for another day, but it kind of was literally like Friday, I, I left my previous job and then the next Monday I was in San Francisco and oh geez. had sort of just very impulsively decided to come down and, and do something. But I think to maybe answer your question, differently, even though I didn't take time off between my previous job and starting the company, what really compelled me was the stars aligning and just being able to be a part of the Y Combinator startup incubator, which we talked about. I think that's awesome. Having a technical co-founder who I really trust and respect and admire, and he was available to start something. That's awesome. And so just I think my my big takeaway from all of this is that when opportunity arises, it's sometimes worth it to just drop everything and go for it because that's that's what I did at least. And obviously, I have the survivorship bias of of having relative success. I don't think I would feel any differently even if we had failed. Hmm. Interesting. I was shared some information that, and I think, well, for me, this is an important topic to discuss. I understand that you've had difficulties with things like depression and anxiety. And the reason why I bring it up is because I think we have to start talking about this more and frankly went through a very, very difficult period myself. And is this something that you've dealt with? And from the outside, it looks like you're living the entrepreneurial dream, but on the inside, perhaps it's not always the case. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad you brought this up and it's something that I'm very passionate about. And I, I do believe that the only way we can really make progress is by normalizing discussions around it and at all levels and all for all people. And I think it's something that I think happens more than it should because it's, there's not enough support for it. Mm. And so for me, you know, I think having come to San Francisco in 2011 to start SIFT, I think when I looked left, when I looked right, there's a lot of very successful people or seemingly successful people, right? I think this is where appearances can be deceiving. We only see each other on the surface oftentimes. And it takes real work to build deeply vulnerable, connected, trusting relationships with others. And I lacked a lot of the tools to do that. I didn't even know at first that I was depressed. I didn't even know how to ask for help. I think that you know this really started setting in in 2014, 2015. And when I look back, I definitely could see all the signs. I, I just didn't want to leave my room on the weekends. I didn't really want to talk to people. At the same time, I also felt very alone. Mm. I felt like, you know, I, I didn't 
know how to get help. The idea of therapy was pretty foreign to me. And that's something else I think is needs to be addressed is that there's sometimes this unhealthy stigma associated with therapy and mental health. And I think having lived it and I think come out of the other side a bit, I just really hope for anyone that's listening, like to know that we're all struggling. Like I believe everyone in the world is fighting a battle that no one else knows anything about. And yeah. that's okay. And I think by starting to talk about it and holding space for each other and really being non-judgmental and just accepting and loving of the experiences that we've all had and treating them as all valid, I think that's how we can start healing. I'm really happy you're saying this and and because I feel the exact same way in the sense that I believe we need to, to make this an easy, normal topic to talk about anywhere. And for me, I mean, I can be very forthright and say like, there was a point where I started seeing that door saying like, I don't want to go there. Like it was, it was a very dark time and, and it was therapy that helped me through it. And, and now I just look at it and almost laughably say like, you go and get somebody to coach you to go to the gym or you go and get a business coach or you go and get, you know, somebody to help guide you through things. Why not help somebody to guide you through your own head? Because we all have these ridiculous thoughts. So just yeah. kind of help roll it out and, and perhaps we can even get a point to where it can be laughable. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's just remarkable how, you know, in professional sports, these players have five different types of coaches and it's expected. I mean, it's, it would be unusual for Tom Brady or, you know, LeBron James not to have every single kind of coach helping them be their best selves. And yet in business, we don't, really celebrate that type of culture and attitude as much as I think we should and need to. And having a coach for your mind, I think is one of the most high leverage investments that anyone can make. Is that not something that we're starting to see accelerators and incubators start to implement? And I think I interviewed Brad Feld and I'm trying to think, I mean, he's had his struggles as well and was very forthcoming with them. And I thought it was awesome to hear, but yeah, I think Brad is a great example of someone who's really on the cutting edge of this stuff. You know, the, the guys at Freestyle Capital just recently announced some great stuff around this too. I think it's starting to catch on, but without naming names, what I would challenge the Valley and kind of our our home-based culture of San Francisco more of is not just providing resources, but also walking the talk. And I think we need to see, you know, more venture capitalists, more CEOs and founders just be very like open about this. And I think not just actually in tech, but I think this is for the world I think I would love to see more celebrities. You know, I think Dak Prescott, the, the Cowboys quarterback, and uh, Kevin Love, the, the Cavaliers NBA player, are two examples that come to mind of people who have really started opening up in sports that are often seen as tough guy sports, right? Football and basketball, and you got to be tough. And I think it's really powerful to see a celebrity of that level talk straight. And it really just sends a signal to everyone else like, oh, this is happening to all of us. Like, you know, even the people I look up to are are going through this. I think that's where real empathy and connection form is when we can see ourselves in each other. Yeah. And man, and I got to, you know, step back to your comments about being in the Valley and Silicon Valley and and the Bay Area where I can only imagine the the pressure to perform and the perceptions of others has got to be just unbearable at times, I would imagine. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the sayings I heard when I got to the Bay Area that I didn't really understand, but now I do, and I think it's a loaded phrase, is, is fake it till you make it. And oh, yeah, okay. I understand its intent, and at the same time, it's kind of counterintuitive to me that we have a default culture where we're supposed to really not talk about what's going wrong and just really only often just focus on all of the, the things that are going well. And that's, that's a real twisted reality to try to be living. At least for me, it was, mm-hmm. you know, even the phrase, how are you? I think, <laughs> sadly, I think oftentimes we're answering that question almost um, in a auto drive. And oh yeah. It'd be nice, I think, to work towards, and I think this is starting to change a little bit here and there, but I think we still have some miles to go, a long road to a culture where it's really okay to say, hey, man, I'm struggling. This sucks. Like, especially in the context of this year, 2020. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I just, something for me that I've been trying to practice more of is just like, <laughs> you know what? I'm just hanging in there. Like, that's it. I'm not doing well this year. I'm not like, it's just, I'm just trying to hang in there and just get through the year and it seems at least when I talk to people in this way, others kind of quickly are able to empathize, right? And just like let their guard down a bit and we can just really connect more deeply. Yeah, I hear you, man. Jason, I appreciate you, you know, having this discussion. And I think it's, you know, in a small way, it's every one of these conversations and the more we can find platforms, whatever the size, you know, it gets that out there. So I appreciate you coming forward with it. You're welcome. My pleasure. Something I am curious about, and let's jump into like, what is that meat grinder of the Valley or, or the Bay Area when, you, when we talk about funding and fundraising? Because I mean, you know, you talk about putting yourself on the line and the pressures there. With SIFT, you've now raised $100 million, as I understand, or close to over $100 million. What advice do you have for approaching investors in that, you know, from that pre-seed through the, the rounds that you've done? Yeah, I think a couple things come to mind. One is when possible, try to build a relationship ahead of time. I think it's just a lot more effective to pitch to someone who already knows you a bit. And it's not like that's the first time you're talking to each other during the pitch. So grabbing a, a coffee and really just building that pre-existing relationship can, can really help smooth the process when you need to go and fundraise. I think the second piece is what somewhat related, but really understanding that particular investor's interests and strengths, because within a given firm, VC firm, there's a lot of different potential partners and some are a better fit for you than others. And that better fit can be both in terms of personality and personal chemistry, but they can also be in terms of business expertise, right? So like, for example, we are a B2B SaaS company, me trying to fundraise from e-commerce, you know, direct-to-consumer type of VC partner is probably not the right fit. Mm. So just understanding those ins and outs can be really important to increase your chances of success and also building a better partnership. And I think the last thing I would just say is learning how to tell a good story and not in the way of like you're trying to lie, but just recognizing that we as humans are intrinsically consumers of stories, right? It's Mm. all around us in books and media and TV and film. Like that's how our brains are wired. And so appreciating that constraint and craft and learning how to narrate 
the core elements of your business, I think, at least for me, has really helped. When did you come to that revelation? Because I, I certainly subscribe to what you're saying there, that a narrative is something that has to be a high priority for both raising money and then also telling the story of the company to potential customers. But when did you come to really embrace that? And was there like a turning point or was there somebody who, who all of a sudden just sold you on, you need to know how to tell a story? Like, what was that for you? Yeah, I don't think I actually had a specific turning point. I think the glib answer here is that every time an investor rejected me, that seemed to be a sign that I wasn't telling an effective story. <laughs> mm. And so just uh, with each round, every no was an opportunity to debug and understand, okay, what did I potentially miss the mark on with this story? And I think it's also important to recognize that storytelling can and should be dynamic. Sometimes a particular partner or firm cares more about one thing than another firm. And if you take a, a one-size-fits-all approach, you might have limited success. And so being agile and nimble and just really reading the room and paying attention to what's resonating and what's not resonating, I think will improve your chances. Hmm. Can I step back to the first point you made as this just popped into mind? When you talk about building on relationships or basically like just not going in to a cold turkey kind of relationship, like, hey, this is my deal. How can you find time with those, you know, potential investors? And like, you know, I'm sure they get a lot of coffee meeting requests, but is there anything that you've done or that you've seen others do that have been effective ways to start to build relationships early? So you're not coming in with, you know, completely unknown. Yeah, interesting question. I think one thing I could, I would share maybe is that Investors I've found to be just very naturally curious people and they really enjoy learning. And so at a bare minimum, if you two are connecting, you can help each other learn, right? They can learn about your industry, but then you can also learn about how they see the world trending and where things are going. And potentially they might have information about your market or they might ask some good questions that you hadn't thought about for your business. And so I think approaching it as not a transaction, but really just a genuine, hey, I want to pick your brain and I want to you to pick mine. And this can be a win-win situation and not really expecting anything down the road. Like I think learning to just sort of take it one day at a time. And sometimes these coffees lead to nothing forever and that's okay, but sometimes they do. And there's no real rhyme or reason. It's sort of just the randomness of life, but you have to be open to it and allow the universe to unfold. You know, what's interesting there is you say that investors are, are in general are a certain kind of person. They're naturally curious. And I mean, the same way in general, lawyers can be naturally risk adverse or accountants can be naturally, you know, X, Y, Z risk adverse as well, at least with my accountant. The point being there, what I took away from that is, is you can actually leverage that natural bias of their curiosity to start to build that relationship. But now it just... I've never heard that before, but now it seems just so utterly obvious. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The next I've got for you, and this is still related to the fundraising and, and before we'll wrap up, is when you bring on VC money, and especially now you've got a large investor base or a larger investor base, what pressures have you experienced from VCs and how are you managing these? Yeah, great question. I think, I know this sounds self-serving, but I do believe it to be true that 
we've been exceptionally fortunate to build a board and a cap table that is high functioning and has a lot of chemistry together. And so I haven't had to personally deal with a really tenuous situation where investors are demanding something of me and, and there's just you know complete opposite ends of, of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. That said, I do think we have healthy tension, right? We have arguments about our debates, I would say, or passionate debates, I'd say, about the trade-offs between growth and profitability or trade-offs between, you know, launching a new product and expanding our product capabilities versus staying more focused, right? And the fun part about all of this is that there's no formula. Like if building a successful business was as simple as just listening to your investors, then when we just do that and and also if, if founders and CEOs just had all the answers, then they wouldn't get any benefit from investors. And so I think the path is often somewhere in between and, and it requires experimentation. It requires curiosity and an open mind. And I would just say to people who might have to struggle with a really difficult investor, I think one, my heart goes out to you because you already have so much on your plate and to have someone on your cap table who is negative and taking energy away from you and costing you precious brain cycles and time is tough. Mm. I think my, my practical advice would be twofold. One, can you leverage other investors to help put that troublesome investor in check to help guide them, maybe even buy them out, honestly, like that, if, if that's a possibility that can often be the best scenario for all parties. Mm. And the second piece is the more courageous piece, but I think it's important to try is to have a heart-to-heart conversation, right? And being vulnerable and letting that investor know like, hey, when you do X, Y, Z, it's not helpful for me. It's causing me stress and anxiety. I know that sounds really scary to say to an investor, but at the same time, in my experience, at least many investors are not intentionally trying to get in the way. They just are maybe less aware of the impact of their behaviors and words. And at the end of the day, most investors really do want their companies and founders to succeed and to do well. And so building that courage and having that muscle to speak your truth and tell it like it is, but do so with respect and compassion, I think is a important skill, not just for managing difficult investors, by the way, this is extremely valuable for managing executives and managing the press and managing your customers and managing your team. Like mm-hmm. this is a uh, learning how to speak directly in a way that doesn't make people feel threatened or gets them defensive is a extremely valuable skill. Hmm. It's just a final question here. How have you been able to build that skill? And is it just been trial and error or have you found ways to yeah, increase your bench strength when it comes to that kind of skill? Yeah, I've been lucky to have some coaches and mentors and go through some programs. I'm still very much working on this, but I'll share a couple of things that have worked for me. I think the first is setting my intention. And if I want to have a hard conversation with someone, if I can say, hey, I've always appreciated that you take feedback and you want to grow. So I'm going to share this feedback in that spirit of trying to help you grow. Or, hey, I'm trying to share this feedback from a place of love. And this is not to hurt you. Like that small offering can set the right frame uh, mm. space for the following hard conversation. Kind of set the tone, yeah. Yeah. The second thing that's helped me a lot is when I'm talking, learning to avoid you words 
you are a jerk or you are making me mad. Like when I jump to you words, I am labeling the other person and it's often a false label or some label that they don't identify with and it gets them very defensive. So instead trying to separate facts from opinions and trying to really focus on here are the facts and then here's what the impact was for me and the emphasis is on impact for me, right? So, hey, when you said X, Y, Z, that made me feel hurt is much more effective than you were being a jerk to me. I think the latter is pretty subjective, right? And kind of puts people on on the defense immediately. The former, it's like, hey, you said these words. That's like facts. And it should be, you know, what a videotape would have captured. Like that's facts. You said these words and here's how it made me feel. And feelings are ours and ours alone, right? Like no one can take away our feelings. So if I felt, felt hurt by those words, that's my feeling. And it's up to you to decide, okay, was that my intention? And often it's not. Mm. I never know where our conversations are going to go when I do these podcast interviews. And I really appreciate hearing your side because there's a lot of like what I am taking away is kind of these, these points on soft skills, which have enabled you to build what you have now. And I think it's really interesting and it's, well, it's refreshing. So thanks. I appreciate that input. I appreciate that, Corey. Yeah, I, th- I do think that soft skills are often underestimated and especially in Silicon Valley where often we are so technically focused and, you know, I was a software engineer, so I appreciate that. And I nerd out just as, as much as anyone, but I've really come to, to learn that one of the most valuable lessons for any leader is that this is a team sport. This is mm. takes humans to go far and to win together and humans are complex and emotional. And that's part of what makes humans interesting and fun too. But having the nuance and a gentle touch in the right situations to guide and influence and help persuade, I think for me at least has really led to more successful outcomes. Awesome, man. Well, Jason, as we, as we near the top of the hour here, I want to, um, well, thank you for your time, but then also ask how can the listeners follow your work? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm on Twitter. Uh, Jason Tan is my handle. And then, of course, sip.com is our website. And, you know, would love to be of service to anyone who's dealing with fraud and abuse and wants to leverage trust and safety to grow their business. That's really cool, man. Jason, thanks so much for making the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.